Orchids first evolved in the tropics, but they now grow all over the world. Most of them spread from the tropics as seeds that were lifted and carried on air currents. A hurricane can carry billions of seeds thousands of miles. Orchid seeds blown from South America to Florida will drop in swimming pools and barbecue pits and on shuffleboard courts and gas stations, on roofs of office buildings and on the driveways of fast food restaurants, and in hot sand on a beach and in your hair on a windy day. And those will be swept away or stepped on or drowned without being felt or seen. But a few might drop somewhere tranquil and wet and warm. And some of those seeds might happen to lodge in a comfortable tree crotch or in a crack on a stone. If one of those seeds encounters a fungus that it can use for food, it will germinate and grow. Each time a hurricane hits Florida, botanists wonder what new orchids might have come with it. Hello, 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 and welcome back to the Lit to Lens podcast. I am your host, Will. Uh, Lit to Lens is a safe place for folks who like the book better than the movie. This is our last episode of season seven, The Unadaptables. Today, we are going to be doing adaptation slash The Orchid Thief. Um, we, we are recording this on Thursday, December 31st. Uh, be sure to check out our most recent episode on Inherent Vice, streaming wherever you get your podcasts. I am with the orchid enthusiast, Nicholas, Nicholas Cage apologist, and New Yorker fan, Mr. Eric. Say hello to the people, E. Hello, people, and uh, happy early New Year's. Let me be the first to wish you a happy New Year's because it's not currently a New Year's. New Year's Eve. Yeah. So, so. still have, what, 10 hours or so? Yeah. Yeah, a little so. less than that. Have a have a great ten hours, everyone. Yeah, <laughs> we worked hard this year. We got through it, um, and now it is over, and everything is going to be fixed. Thank God. Starting at midnight. That's what is happens, that right? right? That's what I've read. Okay. Am yeah. I getting the vaccine at twelve oh one? No, you're you're just that's just like a, a guy with a needle that you're. Gonna... <laughs> oh, is that right? is that what the... <laughs> Don't trust him. <laughs> um. Yeah. So we're really looking forward to twenty twenty one. But before we do that, we have one more book slash movie to talk about. Um, so we're going to give you some fast facts. The novel is called The Orchid Thief, written by Suzanne Orlean, journalist for The New Yorker since 1992, author of eight novels, including most recently The Library Book. Uh, Orchid Thief was published in 1998 and has a Goodreads rating, a rating of 3.68 out of 5. So You know what's funny is that you have here published in 1998. I couldn't find the date either. I don't know if you had trouble finding the date. <laughs> I like looked up when is this published uh-huh. and it just said 1998. There was no month. There was no day. Oh, yeah. Just yeah. That's interesting. I didn't notice that until just now. Yeah. I'm like, what? The, did so, no one? No one remembered. They it was like, oh yeah, that was like 1998. I think. Oh, okay. I think it was published over the course of the entire year. Oh, like were, like, just a pieces. little bit out of time. Yeah, yeah. So like every day they left a little bit. <laughs> every day they released another word. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and so the film, uh, directed by Spike Jones, who's known for being John Malkovich where the wild things are, and most recently, Her. Uh, written for the screen by Charlie and Donald Kaufman. Uh, we're going to get into that a little bit later. Uh, Charlie Kaufman has also done Being John Malkovich, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. And most recently, I think this year, actually, I'm thinking of Ending Things, which is another book um, we could maybe do in a future episode. Yeah, this is Donald Kaufman's one and only screenwriting credit. That's right. That's true. That's <laughs> we're going to tell you why later. Um, so this film stars Nicolas Cage, Meryl Streep, and Chris Cooper. Uh, released in December of 2002, and Rotten Tomato score 91%, Metacritic score of 83. So, pretty good. Hi. Yeah. Um, can you give us a little recap? I can. The Orchid Thief, Will, is many things, but mainly it's the story of author Susan Orlean's investigation into the 1994 arrest of one John LaRoche and three uh, Seminoles in South Florida. They were arrested for stealing orchids from the 
Fakahatchee Strand State Preserve. That's a that's going to be a tough word. But yeah. um, and it, in between that framing, Orlean meets with other mainstream orchid enthusiasts in Florida and layers in the history of orchid poaching, preservation, and Florida people. I think you would agree that this book has Florida man energy all over it. I would wholeheartedly agree. Yes. Um, unfortunately, there's no bath salts. No, so. that was before bath salts were a thing. Yeah. But some some folks were missing teeth. That's true. They're, that's true. They were um, not a not a lot of drug not a lot of drug use. No, if I recall. No, but you could you could argue that um, orchid enthusiasm or orchid collecting is a, a form of drug use. You could argue that. Yeah. So yeah, I will say that. So before we get into the novel and its adaptation, we have a game we like to play here called Two Truths, One Lie. Eric, do you know how to play? Yes. There will be two truths and one lie in the following three statements. Are you ready? Yes. Number one, in addition to this adaptation, Suzanne Orlean has another magazine article that was adapted into a feature film. Number two, the ghost orchid's most intense fragrance is in the early morning, resembling uh, a pear, um, uh, the fruit. And then um, number three, Robert McKee suggested Brian Cox to play him in the film. Eric, after you. These are interesting. Um, so you mentioned that Susan Orlean has been with the New Yorker since 1992. Mm-hmm. And I, I guess she's still there. I feel like I haven't read her in the magazine in a while, but I guess she writes big pieces that take take some time. Mm-hmm. So it's definitely possible that they could have adapted another one of her pieces to a feature film. I don't know. I have no idea. I'm not really aware of her outside of this movie very much. I know, I remember like hearing about the library book. I think that came out last year or two years ago. Um, but that's really all of the information I have about her in my brain. Mm-hmm. So I don't know that could be true. Could not be true. The ghost orchids, most intense fragrance in the early is in the early morning. I think most of our most intense fragrances are in the early morning. <laughs> that's I think fair to say. So are we like ghost orchids? Potentially. Potentially. Um, and then Robert McKee suggested Brian Cox to play him in the film. So I have here, will a copy of Robert McKee, his, his book story, which features prominently in the film. It does. And I'm assuming somewhere on this jacket will be a picture of Robert McKee. And I really want to look at it to see if he looks like Brian Cox or not. I have no idea. I'm glad that you haven't looked at it. Yeah. Well, I wanted to, I knew this question was coming in, so I I didn't want to. I appreciate it. I didn't want to look at it. So we'll look at it. I want to look at it after I answer. Mm -hmm. Um, Brian Cox seems like a really good choice because he's so, he's he's really good. He's really funny. And he says the F word with such like vigor and energy that I, I like, I'm jealous. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to say yes to that. Uh, okay. Did Susan Orlean have another magazine article adapted? I have no idea. The ghost orchid's most intense fragrance is in the early morning, resembling a pear. This is this could be a will trick where you give a little bit more information than you need mm-hmm. to fuck with me. So is it does it resemble a pear or does it resemble like a kumquat? or a grape we know all these orchids if you read the book they have crazy smells yeah they're described in very interesting ways Mm -hmm. i'm stalling i'm gonna say the ghost orchids most intense fragrance is in the early morning resembling a pear is the lie you would be correct huge god damn it yeah so you you were right i did throw that in there but oh really i diagnosed it properly you did. Um, so it actually resembles an apple. Oh. So, pear-like. A pear-like substance. Yeah, I figured I would just like throw that in there. Um, but I thought that was really interesting. And yep. So um, 
number one, Suzanne Arlene had another of her stories called Life is Swell, I believe, which was actually written for uh, a magazine called Women's Outside um, in 1998. And uh, the film is a famous Kate Bosworth joint. Do you know it off the top of your head? It's like her breakout movie. Oh, Swell. So this must be Blue Crush. You are correct. Right? Okay. So that that's was... the only Kate, Worth, Kate Bosworth movie that I know. Yeah. That's like her, her, her number one jam. All right. Now yeah. she's like Instagram famous. Yeah. So I've opened this book jacket, Will. Mm-hmm. And Robert McKee and Brian Cox are like doppelgangers. Yes. They look like almost exactly alike. They, wow. That is crazy. And I was watching an interview with him this morning. And he's got like the same body type as well. So he's kind of short and kind of like roundish. So... All right, Robert McKee's eyebrows are very large. They're, yeah, they're like are, Eugene Levy large. Yeah, they're they're they stand out. They are expressive. But I also in the interview that I watched this morning, a funny uh, tidbit is that they actually worked together, Brian Cox and Robert McKee, like back in the day. So he knows him um, from whatever workshop that they they worked together, or huh. whatever. So they're they're buddies. That's nice. So it, their friendship came full circle in the form of a film. Yeah, and he he made Robert McKee look like an asshole. So. Well, probably doesn't take much. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So we're going to take a quick break and then we'll be right back. If you like what you're hearing, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It'll help us find more fine listeners like you. And we're back. Thank you from that brief word from Eric. So now everybody knows where to find us. You're welcome, guys. Appreciate it. And gals. Yeah. So, um, Eric, what did you think of the novel? I liked it. Um, This is a... Your classic four-star Goodreads review from from me. Um, I thought it was I thought it was interesting. Um, there, I, I mentioned it in the recap, but it's it's kind of a story about this guy John LaRoche, and then it's kind of a lot more than that. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's a lot of history about the orchid trade. It's a lot of history about the people, the places, um, the science behind orchid breeding as well. Mm-hmm. And that stuff was all interesting to me. <laughs> we can get into like the adaptation-ness of it in a second. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But um, as a as a novel, I thought it was interesting. Orchids and flowers are not something I typically read about or was very interested in. But knowing more about the orchid now, it's fascinating. It's like yeah. one of the things that, one of the few things on the planet that like can live forever. Yep. Um, there's tens or hundreds of thousands of species of them. Yeah. They're all like very fertile, can be crossbred. Yeah. Um, so as a plant, super interesting. It's also, or it was back when this was written, very expensive. Yes. And so it was a, a hobby for the wealthy class. Right. Not so much now. They sell them at Trader Joe's for $20. Yeah. Which I got for you. You didn't give me a ghost orchid though. Uh, I'm sorry. I couldn't find but, one. Well, you wouldn't cause they're, they're, they're rare. <laughs> um, what did you think about the book? I really, really liked it actually. Um, I really liked the character's um, LaRoche and even Suzanne Arlene to a certain extent because she was um, she played off of LaRoche in a, in a lot of ways and she would describe her feelings interacting with him and you really got a sense of like um, you know, how crazy this world is from her perspective um, and I really I actually really kind of liked the ending the way it ended um, and I think that is probably one thing where they certainly get into it get into it in the film um, but certainly we'll discuss later how one of maybe that's part of why it makes it a little bit unadaptable, uh, for, for whatever, for certain reasons. Um, but I don't know. I really enjoyed learning about like you, like you said, the orchid 
orchids in general. Like, you know, I'd always heard about orchid flowers, but never really knew anything about them. Um, how they're cultivated and why they're so rare and why they're so interesting and why people have these like obsessions with them. Yeah. Um, was really interesting to uh, learn about. But the thing for me that I thought was the best part that capped off was just learning about this like community of orchid people and how like deranged and odd they are. Um, every single one of them is like very weird and um, very competitive with their their orchid uh their, the orchids that they have and there's competitions for orchids it's a very just weird subculture of america that can really only probably exist in florida yeah yeah and i we should say that the book is not necessarily like it's reported but susan orlean is very much a character in the book yeah like the eye exists heavily mm-hmm. yeah, yeah i was going to ask you like what you thought of that because as a journalist usually you don't kind of Put yourself in the, in story. the story yeah yeah so it's a bit gonzo i suppose um to to put yourself in there but she's not a huge character and she doesn't really change the way things are that's true um unlike in the movie which we'll get into but mm-hmm. here she, she really is just a passive observer and questioner of laroche yeah um and some of the seminoles with him and she goes around to other like areas in florida and interviews more orchid people it's not just about laroche it's about it really is like a whole world that she that she builds for you yeah and so i think when i was reading i was like why does she keep including herself in this and it dawned on me like well maybe there needs to be like a like a placebo character like somebody who's going to ground everything and make the reader uh have somebody for the reader to relate to because i don't think anybody any of the other characters are really that relatable to the normal person yeah She's she's the person that comes in there and you're just like, what the hell is happening? And she's like, let me tell you. Right. Because I am here and I am asking this question. Mm-hmm. I think, yeah, I agree with that. I think maybe it's, we didn't read the New Yorker article. I don't no. know if you did. I actually printed it this morning and forgot to bring it oh. over. <laughs> so um, how long was it? Is it? It's 15 pages. So okay. not so it's, like so it's short, big. but yeah. yeah. Um, I, so I wonder if the I was included in the New Yorker piece or if that was more like straightforwardly yeah. done because my only other thought would be that like this is a book and she didn't know how to expand it without making herself a character within it. Yeah. I, f- it w- I feel like it'd be a little bit more difficult. You'd have to have, it would be more, f- maybe more fictionalized or you'd have to connect things in, in ways that if you didn't have yourself, you would have to kind of throw in there or, yeah. Or there just be, there would be less book. Yeah. I feel like it'd be a shorter story. Yeah. I, I'm in my mind, I'm going to the accidental billionaires, um, to draw a comparison mm-hmm. with two nonfiction books. But so the way Ben Meserich, Meserich writes mm-hmm. that book is sort of like Mark entered the dormitory and was pissed off. Yeah. But it's like, he didn't, he doesn't know that. Right. Right. So, he could like watch Mark do that mm-hmm. if he was writing this in 2003. Like, yeah. oh, I watched Mark storm into his dorm room and do this. Yeah. Or he can just like set then just have like Mark be the main character versus him viewing Mark as the main character. I think those are the two like different ways to approach it. And mm-hmm. she, Susan, Susie, um, <laughs> definitely is does the latter. Like, yeah. I think it's it's probably just easier to have to write yourself in it and just say like, yo, I talked to John. Yeah. And he said this, this and he was and, doing that. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's a bit easier to ground or to write action if as a viewer of action mm-hmm. versus just like John is moving around. Yeah. It, it, I think it, she probably also did it to sort of make sense of everything as well. To sort of have, 
because she didn't really have at least as far as we know like somebody took a sort of bounce these ideas off so off of maybe she was calling her husband or whoever she, you know all the time but we didn't get a sense of that so for her i think it's probably therapeutic and to sort of write it out this way so that you get a better understanding for herself and that it's easier for us to understand from her perspective in that sense so eric what about this book makes this story unadaptable so i'll echo something that was said in the movie yesterday but there really is no story in this book um really she is spending the novel not a novel she's she's spending the book waiting for laroche to go to court so he gets arrested before the events of the book start and she goes to his deposition meets him starts a professional relationship with him where he follows she follows him around asks him questions he introduces her to this like wide world of orchid people um, but really she's just waiting for him to appear in court and be sentenced by a judge mm-hmm. um we can talk about his scheme. His scheme was basically to have these three seminal Indians steal a ghost orchid from the Fakahatchee preserve. Mm-hmm. And the Florida law would protect them because it's one of their like ancestral lands. Yeah. So they, they, while normal people aren't allowed to hunt or gather um, like traditional plants from, or endangered plants from the preserve, Seminoles can. Yeah. Um, they're allowed to. So he wanted them to steal it. He was going to take that ghost orchid, mass clone it, yep. and then sell it cheaply and make it available for people who who like it and thought it was cool and wanted to have it. Um, thus, like, actually preserving the species while right. also giving people what they wanted. Yeah. So really, she's just waiting for that to happen. Um, but there's very little action outside of it. Like, mm-hmm. I just explained that in what a minute a minute yeah probably and that is that's essentially the story of the book yeah um i I think we talked about it that she wrote this in the new yorker she wrote a 15 page article in the new yorker Mm -hmm. in the new yorker we don't exactly know what was said in there Mm -hmm. but like to me that seems what the story was was just 15 pages in the new yorker yeah i mean i don't think it's much different than what you just said i mean you can add things at the end where he's he is um basically exiled from the seminal community and then kind of does his own thing he's into like internet the internet and yeah creating websites for people and, and pornography websites yeah. and stuff like that he creates a porn website yeah yeah but so, so to get from 15 pages in the new yorker to a book length she adds like we were saying all this history mm-hmm. around around orchids yeah. not right. simply related to la roche right and so it's it's undoubtedly because you're essentially turning a textbook into a movie you could do it but you need to pick a story out of a textbook to make a movie and then you need to blow that up yeah so I don't know. That's why I think it's unadaptable. Logistically, I also think it's probably difficult. Like orchids are expensive, right? And so yeah. if you're going to make a $15 million movie where you're spending like a million dollars on orchids, yeah. that's kind of, that's kind it's of a, a weird. Lot. Yeah. It's a lot of money. Um, so I don't know. So that's how I feel about that. Yeah. So I, I guess if you're breaking it down, like there's no real beginning, there's no real inciting incident. There's no real climax. Right. those are harder to pinpoint. Yeah. He does have a want, which is an important thing that you Mm -hmm. traditionally would look for in a movie, right? Like he wants to mass produce ghost orchids, Mm -hmm. but nothing happens. Right, he doesn't do it. When he does it, he gets arrested and then he's in a holding pattern until he goes in front of the judge who 
he's guilty yeah. and goes on probation for a couple of years because it's mm-hmm. you know flowers and not like more serious crimes. Right. So the stakes are a bit low. Nothing happens, and while the world is interesting, the like specific story that we're looking at is not as much interesting. Yeah. To fill a ninety minute movie. Yeah. Um. So why do you think the film industry or you know the studio who purchased the rights to this book or the story wanted to adapt it what do you think they were trying to get so i wrote down that i have no idea um i i'll agree with you though that i thought that world was really interesting yeah like to me i would want to spend 90 minutes or two hours or eight episodes just like driving around in his van like going to all these random people seeing these random shows learning these random facts about orchids it's just kind of like a crazy place. Mm-hmm. I think it, it would be a, a wide world to inhabit with like different random people. Right. Um, and build to something. Right. Uh, one of, I mean, that's one of the book's great joys is just being within those people and not necessarily being with LaRoche, even though LaRoche is a good character. Right. I think that's probably one of the impulses here is that LaRoche is weird and interesting mm-hmm. as a person. And you could see him being a movie character. He doesn't have his teeth. He has all these like get rich schemes, but he also pings back and forth between what he wants in life. Yeah. Like what he's after. Like at some point he collects like ice age fossils. At some point he's into turtles. At some point he's into, I don't know. There's like three other things that they they say that he's into. And then Mm -hmm. he just as quickly like moves on. Mm -hmm. So I think probably like looking at him, you would say like, Oh, he's a, he's a good person. Let's build a movie around him. Yeah. But I don't know. I don't think it's that simple. I don't think he and his plot in this book can hold a movie. And I think what's important to jump ahead to the movie a little bit is he, Charlie Kaufman in the movie, this movie is very meta. So very meta. we'll explain this in a bit. But mm-hmm. he has a conversation with his agent who basically says like, why can't you just make the shit up? Right. Just make it up. You're a writer. Make it up. Right. And he says, essentially, like, I can't do that to Susan. I owe it to her to, like, try to find the story in this book. Right. And I think that limits you. It sort of limits you as a screenwriter. Like, you're all writers. You're all in this fraternity of creative people. And I think you don't want to just... I mean, you could easily buy the book and tear it apart and write a new story based on this story. But Mm -hmm. I think part of the purpose of this podcast, part of the purpose of adaptations is to find the story within the story that you're given. Mm -hmm. And... Like that author worked hard to create a world to find like answers to a story. And your job is to like find the movie in that. Right. So why would they make it? I I don't really know. Yeah. But other than that, like the world is cool and LaRoche could be, could be something. Yeah. So if you were tasked with adapting it, um, you know, what would be some of the things that you would particularly like to, um, emphasize or focus on in order to build a story i think so because this is such a specific thing like orchids and orchid thievery Mm -hmm. um obviously that that is an important part of it but there are like big themes that come out of it Mm -hmm. passion uh money class biology like preservation you know the environment I think all that stuff plays a a big role in this story. I, me personally, um, there is a like throwaway paragraph in the book where she mentions, Orlean mentions that 
1869, there was a boat sailing to the Andes that had three different, um, I forget what they called them, but like people looking for a specific orchid, Mm -hmm. like all these rich people in Europe wanted a specific orchid and they all paid for these travelers, adventurers, whatever, to go find the orchid in the jungles of South America. And there was a moment where all three of these people were on the same boat heading from Europe to South America and they were all looking for the same orchid. Mm -hmm. Like that's the movie. That's, that is a movie that I would watch. Yeah. Like all three of these guys looking for something and being cutthroat and having it being a little bit ridiculous. Mm -hmm. I think there's moments in the book where she talks about like the early orchid hunters would find orchids, save them and then burn down like the pasture where the orchids grew so that no one else could get that orchid. Yeah. And some of that stuff is so ridiculous. Yeah, it's cutthroat. Yeah. yeah, but the history is really interesting. Yeah. So I think my orchid movie, I don't think it would be this. I think my orchid movie would be like the cutthroat, passionate, like Victorian style movie. I think so that's you, a movie I want. So you would basically have like a, a rich uh, Englishman or something, you know, Irish or Scottish person who has... Uh, basically an orchid explorer uh that it's hired for you know he hires to go look for these orchids in south america or wherever and then he would send them off and then that would kind of be the story and then he would be searching for the orchid cutting through the amazon or wherever he is and running into whatever xyz obstacles yeah but i think it's even more ridiculous that there's three people doing the exact same thing and they are not related and they can't be related because you can't share the orchid Right. Like one person has to win. Yeah. Which I think is an important thing for a movie like that. Yeah. That's true. One person wins. Raises stakes. Um, Plus it's just fucking ridiculous. Yeah. It's crazy. Um, Those people are literally nuts. I mean, they've, they probably had way too much money to, than they could ever imagine. Yeah. And some of that is, is, I mean, it's, it's crazy. It's also, it's also interesting because these early orchid hunters are like discovering things. Yeah. They are actually finding things in jungles and in the wild that have never been discovered before. Right. So they're making scientific discoveries and yet they're lost to history because yeah. they're, they weren't important. They were just paid. They're like mercenaries. Yeah. Essentially. Like natural mercenaries. One of, one of the parts I thought was really interesting when reading the historical perspective on, on orchids was that they would have to gather like thousands and thousands of orchids to bring back because many of them would die. The majority of them would die. So they would have to have, you know, some of them, remain so that they could use them and so i think i can't remember what his name is but one one guy invented like this jar essentially that would can preserve them on these long journeys across the atlantic or wherever um to get them all the way back home but that was like you must that would take forever to collect thousands and thousands of orchids and just put them on a ship and send them back yeah for like 90 percent of them to die yeah it's like almost what a waste yeah, you spend so much time, you put yourself in, in a position to die. Yeah. To find something that might die on its way back to your queen or whatever your like benefactor is. Yeah. Your Patreon. Yeah. yeah um, right. <laughs> so it's like inherently ridiculous, but it's, yeah. I don't know. I just, I just There's thought, a story there for sure. Yeah. I, to me, that's that's the movie that I was interested in. Mm-hmm. After reading this book, having it having that part be very small, mm-hmm. I was like, shit, that, to me, that's the movie. Yeah. I, I kind of agree with that. Sort of like a Lost City of Z. Yeah. Esque movie. Yeah. Yeah. 
I like it. Okay, cool. Yeah. Let somebody make that. You write the script. We'll talk to Charlie. Mr. Charles. Yep. We'll get it made. We'll get it made. Cool. Well, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. Do you have an idea for an episode? Tell us what it is. Tweet at us. Find us on Instagram. Follow us for updates and general musings at Lit2Lens. Hello and welcome back. Thank you from that word from uh, myself. Thanks, Will. So, you're welcome. Um, joke time. Ready for some jokes? Let's do it. You want to go first? You go first. Let me go first. Um, <clears throat> so, Eric, what is Spike Jones, the director of um, the film adaptation, what is his favorite hip-hop album from the mid-2000s? <sighs> I don't I don't know a whole lot of hip hop albums from this time period, but he was a music director, right? So he probably has some good taste in music. Yes, of course. So I don't know. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, who does his name remind you of? Does it remind you of any rappers? Mike Jones. Two eight one three three oh eight zero zero four. Mike Jones up on the left. <laughs> I'm surprised you remember that. Yeah. So his favorite album is Who Is Mike Jones from 2004. I like that. 2004. Spike, Spike Jones. Mike Jones. Yeah. Okay. So. Um, yeah, back then, hoes didn't want me. What's it? How's it go? Back then, now I'm hot. Hoes all on me. Yeah. So they thank you. <laughs> he directed adaptation. Now is that also on. your favorite uh, hip hop album from the mid 2000s That's my my favorite Mike Jones album. Yeah, that's for sure. Well. <laughs> <laughs> all right, you go. Okay. Charlie Kaufman failed to adapt the Orchid Thief because he cast Nick Cage, and we all know Nick Cage is only interested in stealing one item. The Declaration of Independence. The Declaration of Independence. <laughs> Too easy. But that was good. You just wanted to say Declaration of Independence. I did. I don't do a Nick Cage impersonation, but if I could, I would say it like he could say The Declaration of Independence. I'm going to steal the Declaration of Independence. Sounds like a... That sounds a little too heavy for him. Yeah. But... That's yeah, okay. It's good. Good Classic jokes. Movie. We, uh... N- neither one of them went over each other's heads. Yeah. We got him this time. Yeah. Thank you. Brought them down to earth. <laughs> <laughs> so let's uh talk about the movie here eric was the adaptation in your opinion a successful one i thought the movie was good i think as an adaptation it was i mean it it was totally different yeah right I, and i think this is why we wanted to include it in this slate of in this season because it the book was so unadaptable that the screenwriter who turned this into a movie literally couldn't adapt it. Yeah. I mean, this movie was basically like bread for this season, I think for us. And we, it was, this is a replacement from Dune. Yeah. Um, I, I, one point we Instagrammed out that we were going to do 1984. Oh yeah. But I, then I remembered like that this was an adaptation and I was like, this is, this is better. It's perfect. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, he, he, Charlie Kaufman is a character along with his twin brother, Donald Kaufman in the movie. And they together, like, are working on writing. Mm-hmm. Um, and Charlie Kaufman is given this book, can't adapt it, can't adapt it. I think it's actually a pretty good representation of writer's block and what that looks like. Mm-hmm. Just this inner dialogue in your mind. We could talk about voiceover later, but yep. um, I thought it was really good that they, they, they totally got it right. It's like, oh, I could write if I had coffee. Well, now I should get a muffin. Well, the, the basement's actually kind of dirty. I, I probably shouldn't write until I clean. And it's just like your brain is telling you, I can't do what I need to do until I do all this other stuff. Mm-hmm. And um, I thought that was, I just thought that was really funny. Yeah. I thought the movie was really good. I, it was, it's really meta. Um, I think for people like me and you who care about Hollywood, pay attention to Hollywood, some of the behind the scenes stuff, 
I thought this was kind of a cool inside baseball yeah. movie in, in some ways mm-hmm. where they referenced being John Malkovich, which was the movie before this movie um, for both Kaufman and Spike Jones. Yep. And I don't know, like Robert McKee's in it. We have this book story on our, on our table right now. Mm-hmm. Um, Catherine Keener, maybe or maybe not John Cusack. Couldn't quite tell. It was. It, it, it was. It was him. Yeah. So a lot of like Hollywoodness in this yeah. movie. Yep. Um, so I thought, cool to say. I, I thought that was all good. Uh, I really like Nick Cage. Yeah. I think great. this is essential Nick Cage. He's both manic and uncontrollable. I don't super self-loathing. Yeah. Very self-loathing. I, I don't really get his appeal to four women, I suppose. Like every time Nick Cage is a love interest, I kind of like cringe. Yeah. It doesn't, I don't Especially like Especially in this movie where he's like fat and balding. But. Yeah. And he's like, Donald and Charlie are different characters. Charlie is definitely like very down in the dumps and yeah. not confident and all that. And really, really awkward. Very awkward. Um, so that's, that's sort of how I feel about the success of it. What did you think about it? Um, so it was very loose, um, very loose adaptation. Very loose. And, um, but it was good. I mean, it, I had no idea where it was going to go. Um, and there were parts, like I would say 25% of the movie was actually a faithful adaptation because I kind of have these these parallel narratives that are happening. They actually show Meryl Streep, who is playing Suzanne Arlene, go down to Florida and actually meet... Um, John LaRoche and you know have these conversations that actually occurred in the book and stuff so you have things that actually happen in the book where uh, while there's another parallel timeline or narrative that's going on that's Nicolas Cage as Charlie and Donald Kaufman who are Charlie especially is, is struggling writing this adaptation so you kind of get both um, but then that stops kind of halfway through the film and just goes on a totally different direction um, once basically um, well, the book ends with uh, Susan Arlene really wanting to find the orchid. So they're trudging through the Fakahachi uh, Preserve all day long and she, they get lost and they end up not finding it. Uh, they leave. But in the in the movie, spoiler alert, they, they do find the ghost orchid mm-hmm. and then and then chaos essentially ensues. But I was I, you know, I really enjoyed it. I think it I think it was a successful film, you know. Whether it, that means it was a su- successful adaptation is probably up for debate. Um, I would say it probably wasn't a successful adaptation just because it didn't really... I mean, I, I don't know if it really held the true themes and um, heart of the book in the movie itself. It kind of takes a wild turn that is so separate and so different that I would say it's probably too far gone to be a successful adaptation. Yeah. It's a, it's a more mainstream turn, but I think the movie knows that it's also, I think the movie knows that it's doing that. True. Like the movie is so meta that it tells you, like Charlie says earlier on that I don't want to make just this normal movie. I don't want there to be a car chase. I don't want there to be like a shootout. I don't want there to be love interest. And then later in the movie, there is literally a shootout. There is like love interest everywhere. Yeah, so I, I think it like knows it's going to be plain, but it's telling you like we it has to be plain. Like we're, we know what we're doing. We don't want to do this, but we're going to do this anyways. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the the Susan character is interesting too, because as we talked about in the book, she's just this sort of like reporter on the ground, but she's also a character, but she doesn't really do anything. Yeah. And I think there's versions of this movie where, 
like the end of the tour, the like David Foster Wallace movie yep. or um, Tom Hanks. It's a beautiful day in a neighborhood where Tom Hanks plays. Oh, um, uh, Rogers. Mr. Yeah. Rogers. Mr. Rogers, yeah. where the conceit of that of those movies is that there's a journalist who is interviewing them for a story. And when that story comes out, like news will break, but also in the reporting of the story, those journalists learn something about themselves or mm-hmm. like put together part of their like damaged psyche. So there is definitely a version of this where Susan is just writing the New Yorker article mm-hmm. and will learn something about herself right. along the way. Along the way yes. um, because as currently constructed in the book, she doesn't really do anything. She doesn't really learn anything. Nothing happens to her really other than that she gets lost sometimes, but she's really just relating a history lesson to the reader. A lot of the time I, I would disagree with you that she doesn't learn anything. I think she learns certainly a lot about herself, but also about like ghost orchids. Cause she, she seems to um, kind of paint. She certainly paints LaRoche as like an adventurer type of sort of a um, chaotic type of where she's kind of the opposite. She likes her simple things and she likes to complete things and she's not really obsessive about anything, but she sort of, becomes obsessive about this ghost orchid towards the end and really needs to to um find it and i think she she kind of goes through a character arc herself where i think if you ask her at the beginning do you think you'll uh trudge through the the muddy waters of the fakahatchee preserve and and for an entire day and risk your life essentially because there are gators and snakes and other things that could kill you in there um just to find this one flower and she would probably tell you at the beginning of the story, probably not, I won't do that. But she ends up doing it anyways. Um, so I think she kind of goes through this, this character arc that's interesting. Um, would you agree that it's been, it was played up more in the movie, though? Her, her character development? Her character yeah, like because I think one of the first things she says in the movie is like, I wish I was as passionate about something as like John LaRoche is about yeah, flowers. Well, so she's like miss, missing passion correct. in the movie. Maybe I just didn't, Maybe I just missed that in the book. But to me, the movie like very clearly spelled out like Susan Orlean is missing this like want of passion. She just wants to be passionate about something. Her life is very rote. And then she finally is at the end. Yeah, I think that it certainly takes a takes a turn when the story changes, because when in the in the movie where Nicolas Cage's character is asking or is interviewing Susan Arlene are basically asking her questions about the adaptation and stuff. And he, he insinuates or he asks a question about their relationship. And he says, I, I sort of get this like tension between you two that were, that you were in love with him kind of thing. Yeah. And then it kind of Susan goes, and, and John and John. Yeah. John the Russian. And they, and that actually happens yeah. uh, in the movie version. So certainly they take a lot of liberties and sort of build her, build her character arc in development in that sense where it goes completely off the rails essentially. But I do agree. I, I do think that, she sort of has this affection or at least some sort of attraction to John in the book. In the book, I did get a little bit of that sense where she, there's something about him that she's attracted to. Yeah. But it's never, it's never like written or spelled out for you that she like, they've whatever done anything. Yeah. Yeah. Correct. Um, so I don't even, I don't even think she even really meant to sort of, have that in there maybe she did maybe she didn't but um i certainly got a sort of like she's certainly interested in the sky at, at some level um but no it goes to in the movie she goes to a way more wild character character arc yeah she's definitely painted as 
more lonely and right like more lacking of passion yeah and then by the end you sort of get the sense that like she's no longer lonely she's like found something that she's passionate about and i think that's the big difference like when in the book she doesn't see the ghost orchid in the movie they let her see the ghost orchid so that she can like her passions are requited Mm -hmm. so it's like her wants have been granted right and i think that you, you got Meryl Streep, man. You got to give her... You got to let Meryl cook. <laughs> it's true. And she did. She cooked. Yeah. She was really good. Yeah. Um, so can we talk about the narration and the voiceover for a minute? Um, yeah. And what your thoughts are, I think. I think it was... I mean, the opening scene, I think, is is just black with his, his thoughts. Yeah. And you kind of get his narration throughout the movie. And we we get to this point where we're with Robert McKee, who's doing his, his seminar, um, where he's on stage and... Um, Kaufman gets up and asks him a question about not, you know, having a story that's basically um, like unadaptable, essentially. And Kaufman basically goes on this rant and tells him, don't you ever, don't you fucking dare have voiceover. It's yeah. a cop out. It's easy. It's any, any like idiot could write voiceover. But this movie has voiceover. What are your thoughts? I th- I'll, I'll relate what I said to you off mic, which is that anybody that teaches screenwriting is uh, the scum of the earth. Because they make you pay to learn rules that don't exist. Mm-hmm. Like we, we've talked a lot this season and in past seasons about like how voiceover is can be cheap and people will tell you not to do voiceover. But like there's there's actually no rules to screenwriting. Mm-hmm. You can do whatever the fuck you want. Right. You can write. You can say like you can you can call camera movements. You can say like we see this. We do that. You can be the you can be the director in the screenplay. Mm-hmm. Some people will tell you not to do that. Some people just do it. Um, some people tell you not to put music cues in. Some people put music cues in. Right. They tell you not to have voiceover. You can you can put voiceover in. Yeah. I think the important thing is that there should be a purpose and the voiceover shouldn't take the place of action. Mm-hmm. So I think mm. the reason why this voiceover works, because I, I would argue that it works. I don't know how, if you feel that too. I, I did. It, I think it definitely worked for me. I think you kind of almost have to have it because you need his internal thoughts as he's going through writer's block, right? Yeah. So for me, I think movies about writing, about writers are so difficult because writing as an action is very, very dull. Yeah. There is a room, there's a keyboard and you are just punching It's totally internal. It's totally internal. And so I think to do that, you have to make it internal. Yeah. And by just giving us these like gibberish stream of consciousness vomiting like just like crap from him Mm -hmm. it it works for me yeah it's not like here's how i was feeling in the moment when my ex-wife came over and gave me my things back like there there are voiceover that take the place of actions like just show your just like show the look right Right. and we don't need the words we can just see you're an actor so like fucking act act, but i do think in if you're a writing a writer and this is a movie about writing having that running dialogue is actually kind of important because mm-hmm. you, how many different ways can you show somebody like typing? Yeah. You can hammer the keyboard. Right. You can be really soft. I don't know. You can just show a blank page, right? right. There's like three ways to show writing and that would be interesting to anybody. Mm-hmm. And even then it's not that interesting. Yeah. Well, everyone, everyone fucking types on a keyboard. It's right. not, it's not that cool. Right. 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 What's cool is the work, right? But, yeah. But so, um, the narration and voiceover in this movie was in itself a character, which was probably just an attachment of Charlie's character, right? Cause it's a, his own internal thoughts, uh, thoughts and opinions. But 
you know, it, it was really hilarious at times. Like there were, I mean, there were times where he was dreaming of having sex with Suzanne Erlene or uh, the music executive uh, or his like the waitress, you know, the waitress. Yeah. Or like yeah. his girl, quote unquote girlfriend that he's the woman he's like tr- kind of seen or whatever. And, you know, you just get his internal thoughts on things and it's funny. Like it's, this guy's literally having like a, a breakdown, like a psychological breakdown and we're along for the ride. And there's no really other way to, to show it. If, if you didn't have narration, it would just be a guy who is fumbling and not doing anything and nothing's really happening. Yeah. I think, I think the key, the lesson to take away from this is that there are no rules. So don't feel, don't feel boxed in, man. You know, write voiceover if you want to write voiceover. But if you're writing voiceover, it shouldn't take the place of acting yeah. or action. Yeah. Like it's it's sort of like I'm gonna get this wrong. I won't even say it. I was gonna quote the Wu Tang clan. That's okay. We'll, <laughs> we'll move on from that. But I think the idea is that like the script is a is like the the skeleton for the movie. Mm-hmm. Like there is more than just the words. There yeah. are the actors and there are like things that happen between two actors Mm -hmm. you have a camera you can just show it yeah you don't need to say it yeah like that's what's different between a book and a movie a movie you show it and a book you say it yeah um okay cool and then i wanted to ask you about as my uh computer comes back awake here from going to sleep i wanted to ask you about donald kaufman and his inclusion uh in the movie just some background, Donald Kaufman doesn't exist. Donald Kaufman is, a, is an imaginary character created by Charlie Kaufman, who is a real person, um, just specifically for this movie. So there are twin brothers in the movie, both played by Nicolas Cage. And Charlie Kaufman is having a really hard time uh, with his script uh, adapting The Orchid Thief. And Donald Kaufman is uh, kind of like a wannabe writer, screenplay person, and then takes his class on with Robert McKee on the story yeah. um, book and starts writing this, um, this, his own screenplay basically based off of Charlie Kaufman's idea that yeah. he told his brother and it becomes like really good. And he's like good with the ladies. He's kind of what Charlie Kaufman wants to be. He wants to be successful and uh, liked by his peers and eventually gets, I think it gets bought. Yeah. So it's it. They're two polar opposite opposites. But I wanted to ask you, um, you know, did you like this inclusion into the movie? Did you think it was appropriate? Um, you know, did you think they could get around this? Like, why do you think they added this? So it's kind of funny because I feel like I almost ruined this movie for you yesterday when you were like, "Wait, who the fuck is Donald Kaufman?" Yeah, and I explained it to you because when I first watched this movie many many years ago, I like immediately looked up like, "Holy shit, did he have a brother that?" died yeah and this is like credited to him also that's mm-hmm. like that's really sad yeah yeah and then i realized oh it's just the fake character yeah. um i think he is a bit of a plot device um i think that as we're talking about like writing it's really hard for a, a movie about a writer to show the writer just thinking Mm-hmm. Right. So we, we talk about the voiceover and how it is necessary because you do need to get into his head a little bit to understand what he's writing about. But also you're just alone in a room writing and there's only so much like you can do with your inner thoughts and mm. Nick Cage's face. I don't think that's a movie. So I think Donald gives you a couple things. I think he represents an outlet for Charlie to like say things, say how he feels about screenwriting and 
how his script is going. Um, it gives you a foil to say like, these are brothers. And yet one of them is like out of his shell and seems to be happy. The other one is in, in his shell and is unhappy. Mm -hmm. So I think at some point you're going to see Charlie try to become more like Donald. Mm -hmm. Like you, you can, you can compare them and see Charlie's growth because of the contrast. Oh, okay. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then I think it's also, I think it's also meta. I think at some point Donald talks about his script or his idea for a script. He wants there to be like a split personality. Right in his character yeah. and he's like how the fuck can you do that you, like you're gonna give away your tell immediately right. like how is this person gonna be in a room and then also in a precinct it doesn't make sense yeah. like logistically you can't do that well this is almost a split personality right because it's the same actor they're twins they're playing the real writer of the movie but they're very different yeah so that's all i don't know it's all very i didn't i didn't catch that until you just said it, but that is also like relatively meta yeah, where they where they talk about his script, where he's a has split personality disorder, and the same guy has many characters, where whereas this is the same thing almost. Yeah, and I just want to say meta as many times as I can because it makes it makes you sound smart when you say. Well, yeah, yeah. Is meta like is is meta short for something? Metatextual. Oh, so there you go. There you go. I'm not gonna explain <laughs> what that means. Uh, I I was seeing it. I was gonna pitch earlier like an Eric's word corner. Oh yeah. Where I just like hear a word because yesterday we watched the movie yesterday. Yeah. He he says like. I'm so solipsistic. And I, I was like, oh, so, like solipsism. It's just like somebody who's very self-involved. And it was something that we learned in English in college. And I was like, what the fuck is this word? This word comes up all the time. I was like, there it is again. <laughs> solipsism. Um, so, so it's Eric's word. word Corner. There you go. Sponsored by uh, dictionary.com. <laughs> <laughs> cool. So you have another word you can, what is it? So, solipsistic? Yes. Solip, solipsism. I'm not going to remember that, but there you go. Um, so moving on from Donald Kaufman, wait, but do you agree with, I guess that take? Yes, I do. So, I, or how did you feel about Donald? Well, I didn't quite understand why he felt the need to add him, but based on what you said, what really struck, what really sticks with me is the fact that he has another outlet. Charlie Kaufman's character has another outlet to get his thoughts out. And I think that makes a lot of sense because if you don't have that, you have more narration, which is probably just exhausting. Right. If you have a movie yeah. full of narration throughout the whole thing. I just don't think it's a movie. Yeah, it's like it's it's a weird voiceover thing at the end of the day. So I think that makes a lot of sense is having somebody to um just bounce ideas off of and whatever. It just have more ex- or uh, character development and, and talking and more dialogue. But also it gives you a parallel or a comparison. Um it almost makes him seem even more in the dumps because his brother is doing so well. Yeah. Um and there's this weird competition, like brotherly competition between them that um makes his situation even more dire and, and drastic. Um and you know, the, the the scenes that like that work so well now are like the scenes where he's in the hotel in New York City and he can't physically go meet Suzanne Arlene himself, so he calls his brother to come up basically to play himself to meet Suzanne Orlean. Yeah. And those scenes are great because it's like, Hey, do you want to come up to New York? He's like, yeah, I'd love to kind of, those are, those scenes are just much better because of that. Um, so that makes a lot of sense. And I forgot what the second thing you said was the meta-ness, the meta-ness. Yeah. yeah. Which is like, this movie's all about being meta. So, yeah. Cause it, Donald is, and I think a lot of ways what Charlie wants to be. Yeah. He, yep. he wants to have his like same intelligence, but he wants to be able to like, talk to Maggie Gyllenhaal. Yeah, yeah, right. Or Susan Orlean. Yeah. But he can't. Um, 
And so Donald is the version of him that can. Right, exactly. But he wants to make intellectual pieces, which yeah, he did with this. That's right. So, <laughs> um, yeah, so we kind of touch on the LaRoche-Orlean, John LaRoche and Susanna Orlean relationship a little bit, but we can get we can delve into, into it a little bit more now. So in the book, I don't know if you've mentioned that you didn't really get the sense that they were kind of affectionate towards each other. Yeah, not It certainly really. wasn't. It definitely was not um, explicit. No. Um, and spelled out but it certainly is in the movie and it uh do you mind like giving the listeners a bit of a recap of what exactly happens between between them yeah i think in the movie you get a sense early on that susan orlean is like missing something in her life i think one of the she talks to one of the seminoles who was there and he was like oh my god i see like loneliness in your yeah, eyes yeah um and she's like no that's just like me being tired i don't know <laughs> it's 2020 i who can say um but she, I think, rides around with John a couple of times, goes back to New York, and they're having this, like, you know, fancy New Yorker party with all these intellectuals who yeah. are like, oh, and tell, and tell them about his truck. Like, oh, it was so gross. Yeah, East Coast elites. Yeah, having, like, a New Yorker dinner party, just, yeah. like, bashing this guy. And you can tell that her heart's not really in on, like, bashing him. Yeah. Um, I think what we talked about, like, she recognizes his passion for orchids and um, the work that he does and... I don't know that it, I don't, I mean, she doesn't really fall for him. It just sort of like happens that she is like sleeping with him. Yeah. Um, she gets caught by the Kaufman brothers Yep. flying down to Miami and they're being peeping Tom's yeah. spying on her. Yeah. Um, but I, I think it goes back to passion, right? Like yeah. she recognized that this guy cares deeply about something. Whereas like her husband who, is played by the, I forget his name. Curtis Hanson. Curtis Hanson, the director of Eight Mile. Shout out. Um, which is cool. And also in, in her New Yorker party is David O. Russell. He's yeah. one of the one of the guests. Yeah. I didn't, we didn't notice him in the actual film, but we saw him on the credits. Yeah, we saw him on the credits. Like, we, what the fuck? Yeah. So we had to look it up. Yeah. Um, but so anyway, so, so her friends in New York are like not passionate about anything other than like slamming other people. Yeah. Whereas John is more about like living and doing and, and helping things grow. And, mm-hmm. um, not worried about what other people think and yeah you know will it's it's also meta because she is adapting to john oh my god like she she sort of grow, they sort of grow together as people and fall you know they do fall in love i think yeah but i would say so there's, no, there's another level of adaption there's adapting a, the the book into a novel there's, there's orchids adapting to different environments oh and there's god. also susan Adapting to La Roche and his lifestyle. Yeah. It's a lot of adaptation going on. A lot of adaptation. This is this is the adaptation podcast, so Yeah. So I I think that that slightly covers it, but like mm-hmm. they start a relationship because she really wants to see the ghost orchid and he's yeah. the person that can do that for her. Essentially, yeah. Um and she really values that. And then it kind of uh we find out that uh it delves into a much deeper thing where they're they actually find the ghost orchid they start cultivating it for drug use yeah and so meryl streep's character suzanne orlean begins snorting this like green powder yeah which is the ghost orchid i guess powder that gets you high i guess yeah um i don't think that's real i mean maybe it is i don't i don't think so. i wouldn't think so but that becomes a, a thing later on in the movie once they once we find out that they're in a relationship that we find out oh okay they're growing these ghost orchids and they're 
selling them for drugs. Right? Yeah, it's that's, like maybe a, that's one part of it. It's like a seminal thing where they used ghost orchids to get high. Yeah, and so they, I don't think they teach LaRoche. He just like witnesses them. He just witnesses them doing it, and is like, I can do it too. He's, did you like that part? Did you like the add the addition of the drug use? I wonder if it was done. I mean, whatever. I was one of my. If we still did winners and losers, one of my winners was going to be or not winners and losers. Hot takes. No, no. Actually, it'll come up later. Anyway, okay. I like watching Meryl do like lines of fake cocaine. That was fun. It was pretty good. Yeah. Um, my my I guess thought is that they did that to better explain why she would be falling for someone like him. Mm. Like she's she's really fallen. Because mm-hmm. she's now yeah. snorting orchid powder. Yeah. So now that she, now she's yeah. like having sex with a guy with no teeth. So it all makes sense. <laughs> and then when so they find out they're they're having sex, John LaRoche and Susan Arlene and uh, Charlie Kaufman is basically spying on them. So he he's he's caught spying on them by John. John grabs him butt naked, brings him back into the room, and they're going through this like what the fuck is going on moment, and then. Suzanne Arlene is basically like, we have to kill him. So she's basically fallen so far that she's willing to like murder. That's true. The person who's adapting her story into a movie in order for like her friends or whoever not to find out that she is like sleeping with John LaRoche and yeah. snorting orchid powder. Yeah. Yeah. That, that was, I think a bit of a stretch, but I guess if you, if you believe the drugs, like drugs fuck people up. Yeah. Right. So yeah. I just thought that part was funny. It was definitely funny. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then I wanted to talk to you about uh, Susan Arlene actually seeing the ghost orchid, actually finding it. And, you know, what you thought about that, because that is that is essentially where the two stories, the difference between the two mediums, excuse me, veer. Um, we're at the end of the book. She's looking for it, She's looking for it, And it's basically the book's about disappointment and she doesn't find it. And in the movie, they find it, and then it goes on this wild turn. Mm-hmm. But the movie kind of, at least for Suzanne Arlene, goes off on this disappointing route, right? She's, she finds it, and it sort of almost ruins her life in a way. Um, it probably does. Takes her down this like, weird path. There's a, It's never said or shown, but I can only imagine, like, she probably got in some trouble. Yeah, they, they never tied her. From tied, the ending, yeah. Yeah, tied a bow on her, but... Um, yeah, it seems like it was almost kind of a curse that she found it. Yeah, I guess that's true. Like getting your passion or finding the thing that you're passionate about is not always a good thing. Yeah. I I do I do, I do think you're right. Like the the book ended on a very I would call it a sad note, right? Like yeah. she she definitely wanted to see the orchid the ghost orchid in bloom. Yeah. And she doesn't get to. Um, and she talks about at the end, like how she wanted to kill John LaRoche as not yeah, in, like yeah, a yeah. threatening way, but just like, just cause he was being annoying and yeah. she wanted to get out of the, the swamp. Yeah. But she never sees what she wants to see. And it's, it's sort of like a bummer. Yeah. Um, because she knows she probably like never will. Yeah. And here I think it's more cautionary or it's more of a plot. Device. I think it's more of a cautionary thing where it's like, you want something so bad and to get it might not be a good thing. I, that's how I see it as well. Yeah. Excuse me. Um, I don't want to say everything is meta where it's like she gets the thing that she wants and then she becomes like into drugs, <laughs> into like shooting people and oh my like God. a badass. Sometimes there's just too much meta-ness. Yeah. So I don't want to say that's meta because I don't think it is. Yeah. But I, yeah, I, I do think it's just like a, a cautionary thing. 
Yeah. And it's in there. It's a happy moment, right? Mm -hmm. Like, whereas the book is down, this movie at least is up Mm -hmm. where she gets what she wants. It just turns out that thing that she wants is going to set her down like an even worse road. Plus it's a movie. You have to think, okay, we have to show this ghost or kid. Like we, that's true. You know, you, we have to have like that moment, but you, there are also moments in the movie where it's like basically like orchid porn where it's like, super up close frontal like that's what i wanted i wanted more of that <laughs> like of the flower yeah the flower looks crazy yeah it's wild looking it's got like almost like two legs that kind of hang down uh-huh kind of looks like a, like frog legs yeah but like really really long frog yeah. legs. it's really 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 weird um i like yeah. it i could have used more orchid porn yeah that would have been nice i wish he started i wish his porn website was an orchid porn website <laughs> oh my god that would have so been funny. that would have been better um here are just pictures of orchids oh jesus christ orchid want- orchid fever <laughs> That's, I might have to buy that uh, domain later. <laughs> um, so, Eric, how did we like the film? I liked this movie quite a bit. Uh, it was very funny. Um, it was very funny. I, I, I do like the inside baseballness of it mm-hmm. that we talked about earlier. Yep. I thought all the acting was awesome. I, I, Nick Cage is hard for me because I sort of view him as asexual. And whenever he... <laughs> And whenever he like has love interest, I'm just like, I don't, I don't get this. Yeah, like who not... would look at Nick Cage and be like, I should like kiss this person. Yeah. He does. He's not like a good looking guy, but he, and he's also really, really strange Yeah, and, un, but like in an uncomfortable way. Yes. Yes. He makes, yes. He, if I met him in person, he would make me uncomfortable. I think. Yeah. Just by the way he looks and sorry that that's very rude. And, but it's not even the looks it's, it's the personality. Yeah. It's also that, especially now. I mean, Think yeah. about Nick Cage in 2002, whenever this was. Like, think of him now. It's like, oof. I keep thinking of him in National Treasure because that's one of my, like, all times, yeah. like, watched movies. He has a love interest in that, and I just, it just doesn't work. Yeah. I just, even him cleaned up and, like, looking buff, I just, I don't. I think he was meant to be, like, the actor's actor, not, like, this main. Not the lead. Not the lead. He, he was meant to be a Malkovich, I feel like. Yeah. That kind of guy. Like a Totoro. Right? And then he sort of got too famous. But now, I guess now he could do it. He could do it now. I mean, he's done so much crazy shit. He needs like a, he needs a redemption tour. A comeback. People seem to like the random movie season now. That's, well, that's true. I haven't watched any of them because. Didn't he have a good one that came out? There was like a horror that was actually rated pretty well. Mandy? Yes, I think so. That was supposed to be good. I didn't see that. I don't see, I don't see Nick Cage. But, um. Wait, what did you ask me before? Did, I would like did you the like movie. the movie? Yeah. Yeah. For those reasons. Yeah. I agree with... Chris Cooper was great. Chris Cooper won an Oscar oh, yeah. for this. Yeah, yeah. For supporting. Chris Cooper is really good. He is really I good. I really like Chris Cooper. Yeah. I mean, everybody was really good. I mean, except for the, the love interest, Nick Cage's love interest. She was kind of bad. Yeah. I forgot her name, but she didn't really get any many jobs after this, I think. No. everyone. A lot of people in this movie are famous. Like, it's, yeah. a, it's a very big cast of recognizable names now yeah yes yeah um i can't believe john cusack was in it that was so funny and they they had that like b-roll scene or like in between takes scene from being john malkovich thrown in there at the beginning yeah with that john was, malkovich that was pretty great yeah i wonder if that was a real tape and then they just like put nick cage as charlie kaufman in it i think it definitely or if they was. refilmed it i think it was it seemed real it did right? seem real i think it that's why i think it was a, a real take from being John Malkovich, it wasn't like they redid it. Um, and then they kind of, because the way that they shot it and the way that they structured the shot, the, when Nick Cage comes in, 
it's like kind of off to the side and nobody's really else's in yeah, the frame. That's it seemed like they he was positioned there to make it look like he was there in a way that was like very fake. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So um I, I kinda wanna watch that movie now, but um Yeah, so we both liked it. Um what about Hot Take Time? Sponsored by Wendy's spicy chicken nuggets, four pieces ninety nine cents. My hot take will is that this book, The Orchid Thief, really should have just been kept as a New Yorker piece. Is that right? Yeah. I just, it's it's not a book about John LaRoche, like at all. There's three chapters that deal with him and his case, and the rest of it is just a history of orchids. That's true. It's not even the history around the ghost orchid specifically. It's just around orchid hunting and whatever, like cl- cloning mm-hmm. plants, all that stuff. Yeah. It's called The Orchid Thief, but they're the thievery happens before the book starts Mm -hmm. and it's just a court case which is not a very interesting court case it's literally just like three paragraphs where the judge comes down and rules it yeah and then then we go into like case law where we discuss like the implications of such a ruling and the historical precedents for that ruling Mm -hmm. that's my hot take give me the 15 new yorker pages <laughs> i'll give them to you i haven't so. printed okay um my hot takes are getting hotter that's yeah, it's pretty hot i mean that's, that's spicy um so i didn't really have a hot take but i'm I'm gonna come up with one right now here on the spot and i and i i want to say that um i think they should adapt story by robert mckee into a movie into a movie i think kaufman should do it or you know what maybe mckee should do it good He's a Fulbright scholar. And you have Brian Cox as the lead. Yeah. Who is who is very good in this as well. That book is probably super unadaptable because it's literally telling you how to write a story. It's one of those things where like, you've seen them like a uh, option, like the Slinky. Those are going to be like a Slinky movie. Oh my God. Yeah. Like a Uno movie. Yeah. Whatever. Battleship. They made a movie. <laughs> You're just like taking IP and creating a thing about it. Yeah. That's creativity. Yeah. Let's do it. I would have to be super meta, like story about story. You should write it. And it'd just be like a movie where Brian Cox is discussing what's wrong with the movie while the movie is happening. Yes. And he's yelling at Nicholas Cage or whatever. Yeah. All right. We'll do it. Okay. All right. <laughs> um, final thoughts. What will you remember, if anything, from the movie? Uh, Meryl Streep doing lines. Yeah. That That's was pretty a good great. one. Damn. That should be a gif. I want that as a GIF, just like Meryl. <laughs> I can get it for you. Doing and it's they're not white lines; they're nasty looking green lines. Yeah, they're weird looking green. I would not. Sure. I would not do that. Yeah. Um, the the two Nick Cages, that's yeah, that was fun. That's pretty good. Yeah, enter, enter the if you enter the cage, you don't always come out. <laughs> Especially him. Yeah. Um, for me, what I remember from the movie is Nick Cage's thinning hair and his fat suit, which you were trying to tell me that wasn't. A real fat suit at the beginning but it certainly is yeah it it looked better on his like naked frame this yeah. is, uh, there's no way that, that sounds good his- <laughs> but when it, when it's just like him without a shirt on it looks more real than it did later when he was wearing a shirt yeah. and you could just like see it under his shirt yeah if that makes sense it didn't look it right. looks more like a fat suit under clothes than it did outside yeah. of clothes yeah and he was like his shoulders and stuff like you mentioned his arms were cut i think he's buff i think nick cage is buff yeah and like just the way it looked it was like way too much hair just on the top part and then like this weird patches of hair on the bottom and then just like a really fat stomach it just didn't look right yeah nick cage has a weird body so it's possible that he just me- methoded it 
methoded it. There's no way. He... And he just, he weight just sits on him weird. He does method Nick Cage. That's what he does. He's meta in that sense. He I guess doesn't... we'll never know. We should, we should ask him on the pod. And then um, the Malkovich scene. I thought that was great. That was great. That was, that's such like a Malkovich, I feel like, thing to do and say. Everybody's wearing these masks. Let's get in and out quickly. Yeah. Yeah. I'm here. I'm think. I'm doing this for them. Yeah. But also kind of for me. At first I was like, oh shit, they're like very ahead of the mask game. And then I realized yeah. everyone was wearing John Malkovich heads. Yeah. Like, oh, you mean like actual John Malkovich masks, not like mask masks. No, he can't see into the future. Yeah. He would never know. What about the book? Um, I liked the orchidness of it. I liked that orchids potentially can live forever if they're well kept. Mm-hmm. I like that there's thousands of types of them. And the one thing that was just a throwaway line that I wanted to bring up the there was a chapter about the seminal chief Osceola. Oh yes. Who goes who gets like sent to prison in uh South Carolina. Off. He dies. The coroner cuts off his head, buries him, digs up his head, yeah. and then puts his head in embalming fluid. And then like gives it to a store who puts it out front for a while. Yeah. And then somebody takes that head and whenever his children are misbehaving, puts the head in their room. Oh yeah. Do you remember this? Yes. And like they're being bad, so he puts Chief Osceola's embalmed head in their room to yeah. tell them, Y'all done fucked up. Yeah. That is wild. It's crazy. So I that's gonna be like a cocktail party sort <laughs> that of. Was story. Like, that was like that was only like hundred and fifty years ago or something. Two hundred maybe. Maybe even more uh eh, yeah. Probably like eighteen like hundred. Civil war ish. Yeah. Yeah. People I think I think it was just before the Civil War. I think this was like eighteen fifties. Okay. Yeah, I remember reading that and being like, what the fuck is yes, that, wrong with these people? That was wild. That was wild. It was wild. And there was um, no reason he did it. He just like stole the head to have it. Yeah, he just, I think the guy was just a psycho. Yeah. Clearly. Yeah. Um, for me, it, it uh, what sticks out and what I'll remember is the orchid uh, community um, and how it's basically a bunch of like weird elitist people who have this weird competition with each other and are like sneaky and lie to each other and it kind of it sort of reminded me of like you know it's what i would expect like the horse community to be you know people who mm. breed horses and are com- literally competitive with each other and they go on like fox hunts yeah like whatever and i don't know this and it's just like these are just fucking flowers like yeah and they're like cutthroat with each other and like try to kill each other it would be a good mini series i think for sure oh my god especially now yeah so so yeah and um so movie or book i'm going i'm going movie i'm i'm departing from my last two unadoptable series picks i'm going movie okay well uh and keeping with our tradition where i picked the opposite i'm going book did you just do that because you wanted to be opposite (laughs) or did you really like the book no i did actually like the book better but i also saw that you wrote movie and i thought well now i absolutely will We'll pick book. Yeah, I can't even consider a movie now. You know, I used to not put my answers in the Google Doc, and now that I have, I can see that it's it's helping you <laughs> it's helping you decide. <laughs> it is. Um, so as we sign off here, um, on our last episode of, of uh, season seven, the Unadaptables, and we'll have one more episode before the end of the year that's just gonna recap everything. Um, our top three movies, our top three books, and our top three Let to Lens episodes that um made us happy made us cry and made us think about the world and smile and smile and everything else <laughs> so that episode is going to be coming out later today as well before the end of the year and look for that 
Uh, but our next episode for 2021, Eric, is going to be what? We're going back to motherfucking Hogwarts. We're taking the Hogwarts Express straight <laughs> to the fucking castle. We're passing episode one or number one. Yep. We're we're passing Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone to do Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets. Yeah. A couple years ago, we did Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. Um, we don't exactly know where that... We don't exactly know where it is. <laughs> it used to live on YouTube and it has since been taken down from YouTube. Yeah, apparently we ha- we added a, a Tribe Called Quest song. Into what were you doing, Will? I don't know. <laughs> I didn't know if I knew how to do that at this point. But they took it down from YouTube and I have to check my hard drive to see if it's still there or not. Because yeah. I certainly don't have it on my laptop. But those of you who have been with us since the beginning will know that we have done Harry yeah. Potter number done. one episode. So yeah. we're, now we're moving on to Harry Potter number two. Yeah. Um, this is a, a book series Will has never read. So it's one of his New Year's resolutions to at least try to start reading them yes i will try yes and we'll see because it's been a cloud hanging over my head for years and years and every time i tell somebody that i've never read the series people get very upset with me because it's a maybe you should just keep it as the fact right like just never read them and have people have that be your interesting fact when you like go around oh like yeah like wait what's one interesting thing about you yeah oh i've never read the harry potter series i don't participate in mainstream culture (laughs) That's how we're gonna be like, wow, this guy, Jesus. (laughs) Maybe I should. Okay, maybe we should change the episode then. (laughs) (laughs) Just follow us on social media for the for the next episode, and then we'll we'll be back with more, um, like defined. Yes, yeah. We haven't we haven't exactly shelved out a plan for the year twenty twenty one, but we're gonna do some more research and and and, uh, maybe we'll do some more TV shows. Yeah, the pandemic has wreaked havoc on movie releases. So yeah, we're not sure when we're gonna be able to get back to the theaters, but hopefully. Maybe mid to late next year. The theaters are open. We just, we're just not going. Oh, that's true. We're trying to be safe. Yeah. So, um, and then check out our most recent episode on Inherent Vice. And Eric, where can everybody find us? You can find us all over the place. We're on Twitter and Instagram at Little Ends. We are, like we mentioned, on Patreon. If you want to throw us a, a couple of shekels there. Um, we are now on Letterboxd. Yes. But if you, if you want to find us in podcast form, we are on Apple, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Spotify, Anywhere you get your podcast. Is that a British? Is that a Boston? I put a little, uh, <laughs> I put a little sugar on that. On that fucking Spotify, baby. Spotify. <laughs> no, we're, we're out of here. We're fucking out of here. So good luck. 2020. We'll see you later. We're ready for 2021. Yeah. Okay. Go socks. Go socks, baby. <laughs> <laughs>